The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders from interviews that are usually recorded in front of live audiences. But today, as we deal with the COVID-19 outbreak, we're conducting remote conversations with some public health experts, the people helping us through this pandemic. Today, my conversation with Dr. Lena Wen, previously Health Commissioner of Baltimore and currently a professor of public health at George Washington University, and most recently, a new mom to her daughter, Isabel, who was born just a few weeks ago during this pandemic, and we'll get into that experience later in the conversation. But we kicked off with some of the latest and most promising news on the treatment front, some encouraging data out of a trial of Gilead's remdesivir. Dr. Wen and I spoke on April 29th, 2020, as part of CNBC's weekly series, Healthy Returns, The Path Forward. I think it would be best really to start with the news of the day. Those are where some of our Twitter questions for you are coming in. And that's on Gilead's remdesivir. Of course, this was a highly anticipated clinical trial that came out about a month early from the NIH. And it was that gold standard placebo controlled study that everybody was waiting for. Uh, And Dr. Fauci giving the sort of top line results in a Oval Office uh, press briefing, very unorthodox way of sharing clinical trial results. Um, saying essentially what they saw was a 31% benefit on the primary endpoint, which was the time to recovery. So it took 11 days for patients on remdesivir to recover versus 15 for those on placebo. He also also said there was a trend toward a mortality benefit of 8% uh, for those taking the drug and 11% for those on placebo. And now we're seeing reports from the New York Times that the FDA may give it emergency use authorization as soon as today. Um, so I want to get right to a Twitter question that we received for you from David Chang, who asks, if remdesivir helps people get off ventilators, could there be a meaningful reduction in fatality that would expedite reopening? And now it might be too soon to know about the ventilator effect, just because we haven't seen all of the details from the study. But what can you say about just seeing these data? And as a doctor, um, how much confidence it would give you in being able to treat patients? Well, I mean, I think this result is certainly very promising because until now, there was no medication, no treatment that we could say was effective for COVID-19. We could say that there were treatments that were under investigation, but there was nothing that withstood the placebo um, and um, the placebo test of comparing to, to, uh, to a placebo. So I think this is very promising. The issue, though, is that it still is a fairly small effect. I mean, being able to recover faster is important, but these individuals still get very ill. And so to the question of reopening, I'm not sure that this is what would expedite reopening. I think it gives us hope. I actually think that what would expedite reopening a lot more is having the ability to test everyone who needs it and wants a test and having contact tracing so that we can identify each individual who tests positive and who their contacts are. Those public health measures are what's needed in order for us to reopen, although having a treatment certainly gives some hope and and reassurance um, if one ends up falling very ill from COVID-19. 
and I want to ask you all about cities' preparedness to do that testing and that tracing. Um, but just to dig a little bit more into um, the placebo-controlled aspect of this trial and the reason that's so important. I mean, from what you've observed of the um, the course of this disease, while it is very severe. Um, people do recover and they do um, leave the hospital. So um, tell us just why it's so important to have that placebo control with the, you know, the impact that, you know, people can recover on their own. So, so needing to have that kind of control in these trials. Yeah, I mean, that's the gold standard for clinical trials that you do need to have a comparison group because otherwise all you have are basically anecdotal evidence. If you're studying whether a particular medication is working, you need to have a comparison to something else. And previously, all the other studies that found effects in this or other medications uh, didn't have that placebo control. And so this is an important step forward. But again, a few caveats. One is that this is the first, um, the first trial that has this type of positive effect. Um, it's also that there are certain types of patients who were tested in this case. In this case, these were individuals with fairly advanced COVID-19. And so I would not want people to get the wrong idea based on these study results. I don't want people to be thinking, well, I have mild illness, so I should be taking this medication now. Or I don't even have COVID-19 at all, and I should be taking this as a way to prevent myself from getting COVID-19. That's not what this trial studied. We may get to those other studies in time, but we should be very careful about interpreting these results too. Right. And of course, this is an intravenously administered drug. So, you know, it's given in the hospital setting, uh, very different from hydroxychloroquine, which was already on the market uh, at the time when there was so much um, discussion and, and hype, a lot of people would say, around how well that drug works. Um, I want to ask you also about some comments that Dr. Fauci made today, sort of comparing this to the early days of HIV and finding the first treatments there. And while in some ways he was saying this is very promising, I think there was a nuance to that comment he made about it being the building block to effective treatments. Um, can you help put that into context for us? Well, during the HIV epidemic, the initial medication, the antiviral medication that was identified that showed that it was effective it was the beginning. It was something that had an effect and potentially helped some individuals. But it was not until this cocktail of medications, the triple therapy of antiviral medications, that we really saw a breakthrough when it came to treatment. And so I think, again, it's important to see this as a ray of hope that we have a treatment that works. And now we need to understand better about why it's effective uh, for which patients is effective? Is it patients who only have severe illness? Is it patients who end up taking it at a certain point in their illness? And uh, is it patients with a certain um, pattern of symptoms that it's the most effective for? We need to understand a lot more. And I think perhaps that's what Dr. Fauci was alluding to, that this is the first of many positive steps that are to come in our understanding of this disease. Still to come on the keynote, Dr. Wen on what state governments need to have in place before they can effectively and safely reopen. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Dr. Lena Wen, former health commissioner of the city of Baltimore. So let's talk about what you were talking about before in terms of the testing and the tracing and the more immediate tools we need as we start to think about reopening. And of course, when you and I first met, it was when you were Baltimore City's health commissioner. And I was doing a story about the price of naloxone um, to treat opioid overdose. Um, so you have hands-on experience leading a local health department. So tell us about the kinds of resources that departments like that have um, and their ability to do this kind of work. So testing and contact tracing is the bread and butter of local public health. It's what health departments around the country do every single day. We know how to do this work. We just have to have the resources to do so. So for um, any infectious illness, let's say Legionnaire's disease, measles, um, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, what happens is once a case is identified, when somebody tests positive, public health workers go and interview this individual. They find out all the other people that they could have been exposed to during the time that they were potentially infectious. And then they go talk to these individuals to see if they have symptoms and then if necessary, quarantine them and educate them about what they should be expecting next. So this is what public health does every day. The issue though, is that it's very time intensive and labor intensive. And if we currently do not have the resources to do this, then we also can't safely reopen. Because the key is that if you have social distancing, social distancing is a blunt instrument. It's what happens if you have many people who potentially have the disease and you can't track each individual down. Ideally, you get social distancing to work to the point that you can pinpoint each individual who gets this disease and then you can trace their contacts. But we have to get the disease burden to a low enough number and we have to have the testing and contact tracing capability in order to do that. And so one thing to stress to everyone is that everybody wants to know, when can we reopen? Well, it's not a static picture. When we reopen and how soon we reopen depends on how soon we can get these capabilities up and running, how soon we can get the resources to local public health departments, how soon can we get widespread testing, and how soon we can increase the capacity to do contact tracing that's really needed in order to box in the infection so that we can stop this blunt instrument of social distancing and move to these much more specific um, tools that will help the economy reopen and things get back to normal while still identifying every positive case. Well, I want to dig in with you a little bit on that question of resources for public health departments. We've heard a lot about the reduction in uh, funding for the CDC, um, the cutting of the National Security Council position who was focused on pandemic preparedness. But what can you tell us about your years leading a, a local health department and the level of funding you were able to get then? Meg, there's a saying in public health that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. That by definition, <laughs> public health succeeds when 
we are invisible, right? When we prevented something from happening. And so you don't see the impact of public health. You don't see the lives that it saves, that the work saves every day. But as a result of public health being invisible and having no face, it ends up becoming the first item on the chopping block for every budget cycle. This was not just for me in Baltimore, this is for my counterparts around the country that every time come budget time, we are always fighting to sustain the few positions that we do have. I mean, in Baltimore, I had six people do all of emergency preparedness, including all that work in contact tracing that we talked about. And by the way, a lot of the work around other emergencies that came up like hurricanes um, and, um, and the opioid epidemic. And so we're talking about very few positions that we had at the best of times. But we've seen in, in, in the last couple of decades that about 25% of the public health workforce around the country in local public health departments has been decimated. We've seen that the public health preparedness funding is consistently cut year after year. And now with COVID-19, we're seeing what happens as a result of not making investments in that public health infrastructure. And I hope if it's any lesson that we're taking away from all of this, it's that public health is essential to public safety and, um, and to national security. Uh, I have to apologize if you're hearing my baby cry in the background. My husband is with him. And this is our work from home reality these days. Uh, but let's keep going. I thought I mean, it was when mine you said you until I listened. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's mine. I have to listen um, closely to the sound. <laughs> <laughs> When you said you only had six people to do that, that emergency preparedness at work in the city and to do all of that contact tracing, I mean, my jaw dropped. That just seems like so few. When you hear the numbers that people are talking about now that we're going to need just for contact tracing around the country, some people are saying 300,000 of these folks are going to be needed. What have you heard about the funding for this? Do you think it's going to be sufficient to do that? How long is it going to take us to get this infrastructure into place? Yeah, I mean, the best estimates that I've seen for how many people we need for contact tracers, they range from 100,000 to 300,000. That's a lot of people. And maybe you're wondering, why do we need that that number? Well, if you think about for every one person who tests positive for COVID-19, even if they're only exposed to 10 people during the time that they are infectious, that's a lot of people to be able to trace and, and figure out where those individuals all have been to. And then if we're talking about 100 people in a community who have to be traced, and if every person was in contact with 100 people themselves, we're talking tens of thousands of contacts that have to be traced within a short period of time. So those numbers of needing 100,000 or more contact tracers, I think, um, are very reasonable. Now, the question is, how do we recruit them, deploy them, and train them? And it makes sense to me that we do so in a national coordinated effort. It does not make sense that you have every state running their own programs and their own training protocols, when in fact, this is something that every state is going to be needing. So we need the resources to do so, we need the infrastructure, and I also hope that the federal government will be stepping up. They should be augmenting state and local efforts if there are state health departments that can do this on their own, but all they need is funding, that's great. But the vast majority of states will need a lot more support and having a national coordinated effort for this, as well as for widespread testing, just makes sense and frankly is essential for us to scale up um, in the time period that we have. Because again, the longer it takes for us to get there, 
the longer our economy is going to stay closed. And this is what we know we need. So can we just get the willpower and the coordinated efforts to get there? On the testing front, you know, we have heard a lot more about that from the federal government um, in the last few days. Uh, and it does seem like capacity is starting to increase. Um, are you encouraged by what you've heard? Do you think it's enough? Um, and, and is that setting kind of a blueprint for a federally coordinated response that then we could hope to see in terms of contact tracing as well? Yeah, so frankly, I've been very disappointed by the federal government's response on testing. Looking back, the single biggest mistake that was made in the entire U.S. response was lack of testing. Now, we should be looking forward and seeing what lessons can we draw from this. And what I'm really disappointed by is that the federal government seems to not have learned that initial lesson. When we look at other countries that have been successful in the response, the one thing that they all had was widespread testing. We need to have that testing. Otherwise, how do we even know the true burden of COVID-19 in our communities? How can we identify those individuals that test positive to do the contact tracing in the first place? I mean, I wish that the federal government would stop arguing about why we don't need testing, because clearly we do, and recognize that this is a really difficult problem. I mean, trying to get all the reagents and swabs, all the materials, the distribution, that's complicated. But let's recognize that we need to get this done. The latest blueprint that was put out, I guess it recognizes that this is a this is a major effort that needs to be undertaken. However, the numbers that are projected, the two testing 2% of the US population is nowhere near where it needs to be. And it's still, this blueprint still puts the onus on the states, which just doesn't make sense. Again, states should not be each acquiring their own materials and bidding against each other to try to get testing done. So I really hope to see the federal government not only recognizing this is a problem, but also taking charge and taking responsibility of getting all these tests up to capacity and um, to the states and front lines where they are the most needed. Well, so much of the response we're seeing does seem to be coming from state uh, level leadership. Um, and I want to ask you about some of the approaches you're seeing around the country with another question we got from Twitter, this one from uh, Ildiko, um, or Ildiko, I'm not sure how she pronounces her name. Uh, she says, is anyone looking at a nuanced approach, a methodical easing of restrictions and a willingness to reevaluate what is or isn't working and adapting as needed? She says also, who exactly should be making these decisions? It's a really great question. Um, the issue of having a phased reopening, I think most people, most governors, the federal government is there in that understanding that you're not going to be flicking a light switch. It's more like a dial that you turn up and have the ability to turn down if you see a resurgence in cases. I hope that the American people will see this next period coming as one that by definition has to involve some experimentation because otherwise we're just stuck in place. I mean, we can't never reopen, but if we reopen, we'll be reopening a little bit at a time. And if we do see that there's a resurgence, we have to have the tolerance ourselves of rolling back these restrictions and renewing them as needed as well. So I do think that it makes sense, for example, to open the businesses. If you think about a, um, um, a two axes, one axis is the um, how essential the business is, and then the other axis is how likely are you to transmit the illness in that place of business? 
ideally you're reopening the businesses that are the most essential where people are able to do social distancing and it's relatively safe to, to reopen versus the ones that are the least essential where there is the highest probability of transmission are the ones that are reopened the latest. So I think having that phased approach makes sense. Having the ability to, to tune it back and having the tolerance to do so by the American people also important. And I think this is where the federal government does also need to step up. They need to be providing the guidance, specific guidance on which businesses are safe to, to reopen when, what's necessary in order to do so, how can you protect workers as well as customers if relevant. And um, perhaps the decision could be left to the governors, but you do need much stronger federal guidance um, to assist states with making the best decisions for their populations. Still to come on the keynote, what if you have to go to the hospital for something other than COVID-19 right now? First-hand advice from Dr. Wen. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with Dr. Lena Wen, former health commissioner of the city of Baltimore, and currently a public health professor at George Washington University. She joined me April 29th, 2020, as part of CNBC's Healthy Returns, The Path Forward series. I want to ask you a little bit about what we are hearing from the federal government and how. You know, going through the uh, Ebola crisis, um, it was obviously a very different situation, but the CDC was at the forefront of all of those communications with briefings from then CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden. We haven't had a briefing from the CDC in this crisis for more than a month. Uh, What is your take on what is happening with the communication around this crisis from the top? Look, I don't know why we haven't heard from the CDC. Um, There's been speculation and a lot of reports written about this. Um, But I will say that from a public health perspective, as well as as an American citizen, that's I want to hear from the public health experts. I want daily briefings on what's going on. What is the state of the disease? What is the latest research? How we should be understanding that research? I would want to hear about the clinical trials around vaccines and treatments. I want to understand all these new studies also coming out and new reports coming out about COVID-19 and how even though it's a respiratory disease, that it's now it now seems to affect other body systems and is causing strokes in otherwise young, healthy people and is leading to kidney failure. And how can we understand that? I want to hear from the epidemiologists, the the best government scientists in our country and in the world, frankly, I want to hear from them about where, what is the state of the illness and how we as the American people should be understanding it, how, this, how their understanding um, and the changes to the science are now guiding 
their policies and recommendations and what their advice is for keeping Americans safe. I mean, that's what I want to be hearing from our federal government. And frankly, I think that not only would the American people be listening, but policymakers and citizens from around the globe will be listening because these are the best scientists, the best minds um, um, that we have thinking about COVID-19. So I hope that we can return to a place where these briefings are able to occur where scientists are able to speak with the voice of data and science and reason, um, and where we can put partisanship and ideology aside, because at the end of the day, this is about saving lives. Well, I want to um, take the last few minutes that we have of our chat to ask you about something very personal. Um, you wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post on April 9th um, about having your second baby, Isabel, um, just a few days before. So she's only a, a few weeks old at this point. It's amazing. And, and you wrote your, about your experiences giving birth during a pandemic um, and that you were surprised by a few things. Just tell us about that experience that people are going through now. And um, it's a unique one and one you'll be able to tell Isabel about years from now. Yeah, so I have a two and a half year old son, Eli, and um, gave birth to him at the same hospital that I gave birth to my daughter, Isabel, um, just a few weeks ago. And it was a night and day difference. I mean, the first time as all pregnant moms, you know, I was thinking about things like, how do I breastfeed? What is my birth plan that I need to talk to my OB about? Um, how can I what kind of car seat do I need to buy? I mean, I had very different concerns, shall we say, than I had this time around giving birth in the middle of, of a pandemic when I was worried about hospital capacity and worried about whether, I mean, I had this recurring nightmare that I would be diagnosed with COVID-19 or have symptoms just before birth and therefore would not be able to hold my baby potentially for weeks. I mean, I just had very different concerns. And I think so many people have these concerns now because healthcare happens in the middle of a, of a pandemic. I mean, people are still having their um, emergency appendectomies. They're still having um, diabetes and heart disease that they have to go in for, for care for. And it's just a very different set of worries that we may have. I was worried too about whether my husband would be able to accompany me in the delivery room. He was, but so many patients are not able to be with their loved ones. I don't mean just during childbirth, but also in these other really vulnerable times in their lives when they're ill. Um, you know, something else I think the most striking part to me during childbirth too was how much I was worried about my providers and worried for them. I, there were two people, a doctor and a nurse in the OB unit who had just been diagnosed with COVID right before I went in. And I knew that a number of other providers were quarantined, and so they were short-staffed. But I also knew about asymptomatic transmission and thought about how many people I could be exposed to who have COVID-19 and just don't know it, and I could potentially be infected while I'm in a hospital. And then I thought about what are my providers are going through too, that maybe they're worried about the same thing for me, that maybe I or my husband are the silent carriers and we could be infecting them and then they could infect their loved ones. I mean, it's just a very different and uncertain time that we're in. And I think it, you know, my advice for pregnant women is have a plan, but understand your plan could change. Make sure that you bring in your list of medications, your contact information of your loved ones and have your tech devices just in case you happen to be separated from the individuals who normally would be accompanying you during, during these times. 
And then the last thing is during the postpartum period, which is one that's normally filled with a lot of joy and sharing your newborn with all the other family members and friends that unfortunately that may not be able to happen right now. Um, certainly you can't do that in person, but to replace that face to FaceTime with FaceTime and to find that joy um, in a different way um, in our lives. That was Dr. Lena Wen, public health professor at George Washington University and former health commissioner of Baltimore. She joined me remotely for CNBC's weekly series, Healthy Returns, The Path Forward, on April 29, 2020. My thanks to her. We'll be talking to many more experts, executives, and influential voices in healthcare at CNBC's virtual Healthy Returns Conference on May 12, 2020. More information on how you can join us at cnbcevents.com. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care and thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.